You're listening to the Rosenfeld Review. I'm Lou Rosenfeld. I have a special guest today. I've been really looking forward to talking with him for quite some time. You in the uh, UX world probably know him. You in the product world most definitely know him. It's the one and only John Cutler. John, hi. Hi, great to be here. Yeah, excited to chat with you. Great to have you join us. Uh, we're actually having John join us as the closing keynote at Design in Product 2024 uh, coming up on November 29th. It's the second conference, uh, the second edition of the conference uh, that I've been working on now uh, a couple of years with Christian Crumlish with help some, from some really good people like uh, Wendy Johansson and Laura Klein, Kat Small, Rich Miranov. We've got a program. It's a one-day program. If you are a design or research person, a UX person, and you're trying to work with product people or become a product person or just survive in a product setting, that's <laughs> the that's the conference, a one-day virtual conference on November 29th. And we have this guy closing it out. John, um, you are... First of all, uh, well, let me introduce you formally. Uh, you told me to say that you're the currently the Senior Director of Product Management at Toast, a writer and a doodler. You're also uh, prolific. You um, post in LinkedIn and on your newsletter, uh, which is in Substack, The Beautiful Mess, The Beautiful Mess of Cross-Functional Product Development, uh, I subscribe. If you're listening, you should too. Um, let, let me start with that, actually. I mean, I got some pointed questions about product and why it is what it is. For you, it's a mess and it's beautiful. Let, let, why don't you tell us a little bit about how you came up with that framing for product well, development? You know, yeah, I think... Um Thinking back, I was involved in the music business for a while in a band, and we toured around the United States um, for a while, for you know half a decade, I guess. Uh, and John, I have to interrupt I always, you. I'm sorry, but we have to know the name of the band. So, we, we oh no, oh the band. You have to know. Actually, yeah, my friend. It's Blue. It was like the cheese. It was the worst name possible. But my my high school friend Blue. <laughs> Uh, got a record deal, and yeah, we toured around uh, playing. We opened for a lot of people, which is a lot of fun. Um, different folks. Um, so we did that for. So I've always had a bit, bit. I've always liked creative things, like the creative making of things. Whether it was music, I had this video game company where I made this video game, um, and I'd always associated myself as someone who likes messy creative endeavors whether that's making music or building things with other people and so i'd always gravitated towards that um part of of this business and then i got involved in successive product management jobs i was actually a ux researcher for a little bit and business analyst jobs and powerpoint jobs pretty much all sorts of jobs um and then when i started to write what i found myself is gravitating towards really the messier parts of this. So, you know, someone would come in and say, well, you just need to do this. And I always found myself being like, I don't think you just need to do that. Uh, or they would say, well, what, what, you know, this leader just messed up. And I would find myself writing, well, I don't know, have you taken the perspective of this leader? And wow, this is pretty, this is a complex socio-technical system and there's a lot of stuff going on. I'm not sure it's as easy as that. 
And I just started to notice that theme in my writing before I started the most the most recent uh, newsletters. I'm about 250 posts in, but before then is another four or 500 posts on the old cuddle.fish. And this was all the same kind of stuff, you know, the same like messy, creative endeavor, sort of people are not predictable, leaders are not. So, so I always just loved kind of unpacking the mess. Um, and even when I was back in my band days, it was always like, well, you know, what is it going to take for us to be able to make a great record together? And, you know, why do recording sessions go the way they go or any number of things? So I was just, I always found myself gravitating to these types of questions. And so it just, and anyway, I had to come up with the name literally in 30 minutes because I had forced myself to launch the new newsletter. And so I had to come up with the name that was the best I had uh, sure, at that point. Coming up with titles is a pain in the ass, I can tell you, but yeah, that, that's another conversation. <laughs> um, so you, you know, the mess is beautiful, but I imagine what you're doing with it, and, and I think I see this in, in your writing, is looking for patterns to emerge from that mess. Um, are you seeing patterns? Are there patterns? Maybe it's it's just always going to be a mess, <laughs> and 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 the only way to cope is simply to tread water and hope to not drown. Well, I think um, you do start to notice patterns. I actually there's there's someone who writes a lot about education, and his name is Cedric Shin, and he writes this this uh, newsletter called Common Cog, and he did this uh, analysis of my tacit knowledge of product about what are all these patterns that you pick up on over the years and like what are all these dynamics that you are able to sense maybe you can't name it or put a label on it but i think that's part of being experienced or beginning more experience you start to notice these patterns i think one thing that i've learned over the last two or three years is just kind of fooling myself like pattern matching is relatively easy if you've been doing it for a long time but then you're actually able to start persuading yourself you think you know what's going on mm -hmm. when actually way more uh would be going on uh, there's a great book called Images of Organization where it challenges you to think about companies from like a bunch of different uh, structural frames, like uh, you know, company as brain, company as political system, company as machine, company as uh, instrument of domination, company of all these different things. And that's where I'm at right now in my career. So I sort of thought I, I became known as the pattern matcher. I would write a blog post like, you know, 12 signs you're working in a feature factory. And people would say, how did you know? That's just like what my day was like. And I did that for a long time. I think in the last two, two years or three years, I've gotten even deeper into the mess, realizing that I'm bringing my own worldview to understand mm -hmm. those patterns, everyone else's, and that... Uh, you can fool yourself thinking you know what's going on by your ability to pattern match, but it doesn't necessarily mean you have the perfect sense of what's going on. So yeah, I'm going deep on my own personal vision quest of organizational psychology. So <laughs> I mean, that's, right, that's basically how I'm wired. Yeah, I mean, I love those different frames. Actually, I want to check that book out. Um, but it, it sounds like you've had sort of a almost a. a reevaluation of your your pattern matching abilities like at, at, a, <laughs> a, at a at a like it there's like the obvious patterns that we we kind of deduce pretty quickly because they're based on right. surface level observations and then you know you start building up your own worldview and you start looking for the patterns you're most familiar with or you're most comfortable with and you then you start to lose the ability maybe to look a little more deeply for patterns that weren't initially a parent is, is that yeah. kind of what you're getting at yeah and i have examples too even just drawing on my own experience that you know i i'm this sort of communitarian hippie music maker you know i mean i don't know about the hippie stuff but like i i i can't think of product development without thinking of it as a group endeavor you know a group of people 
And so, of course, I was pretty tuned into when the collective consciousness of the group was being threatened in some ways, you know, so I'd be like, well, th well, that incentive is going to mess up the team dynamic, um, that type of thing. And, and I started to observe more that, you know, that's, that's also a worldview and there's different ways to think about teams. And so, for example, even in the last year, uh, especially as the job market has become a lot tighter, you realize that often people uh, put up their, uh, they put up their force field, they're not in the best environment, and they pretty much want to lay low and they want to do what they can to move forward in this job, not get fired. They want to, they pick their battles very, very carefully. And so I'm just mentioning that because, you know, my prior worldview had been like, well, why, why aren't people shouting from the rooftops that the team is, is being threatened here? The team is having to think and, and you start to realize as you take these different frames, you know, you start to think about the different frames of teams. It's like, wow, it's not always easy to take that perspective. And, and, you know, sometimes an organization is an instrument of domination. <laughs> sometimes things suck. And if they suck really, really bad, uh, you know, a lot of, a lot of the rules get thrown out the window at that point. And so you need to be able to jump between these different frames. And that's maybe not the best example. My point there is, you know, one view here is you could really pick up on patterns impacting teams and how they work. The next level of that is realizing that that's just one frame out of a couple different frames that teams are going through. And, you know, the individualist frame is important and the self-preservation frame is really, really important. And the everyone wants to be a great designer or PM and realize their own professional identity frame is really, really important. Mm -hmm. <laughs> and so this is just about, I guess, evolving in your career. Uh, I, I feel I've done that, uh, you know, over these years, but just how you you tend to get like next level you 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 challenge yourself and then get to the next level of awareness about what's happening maybe well you know it's also just experience i mean it, you know yeah. I, I remember uh early in my career i didn't have a lot of uh, empathy for ceos <laughs> and i mean i you know i managed to come across some that really didn't deserve it but that didn't mean <laughs> that's that was the rule and and um you know, now that I'm sort of in that role, in a sense, uh, <laughs> I have a little different perspective. Um, and I'm wondering, you know, if you're seeing a similar maturation in terms of the way product and design relate. Oh, yeah. Well, the, you know, I, did, I worked at a place called Amplitude, and at Amplitude, I had this product evangelist role, which put me in touch with hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of teams from around the world. So one interesting thing about that role is that, you know, when anyone talks about, you know, pr the relationship between product and design evolving, really, it's about a whole ecosystem evolving at its own rates, you know, so on any given week, you know, I would roll into one company, and it felt like it was 2003, you know, like the PM was prototyping stuff in PowerPoint or something. And, and that's the, and the, that, that was it. And then, you know, one hour later, it would be in some organization that was really, really pushing the limits. Uh, hey, we don't even really have PMs. Um, they have a more commercial focus and really are it's each team is pretty much run by a, a duo, a duo, right? Of, mm -hmm. of, a, of maybe some kind of designer and some kind of engineering lead. And that's how that company works. That was a really interesting perspective because you understand that these things just have like a macro cycle to them. So that was an incredible insight because you realize that you know, it's a 20 year time span. Like, you know, we're talking about these things. There's definitely some companies that are operating like it's 2003 and some that are operating like it's 2013 and some that are operating like it's 2023. But I think to answer your question, I think at a high level, you know, 
these things go in fits and starts. And so, I, for example, I worked at a company who was just in that phase of design staking. It's claimed the areas of expertise that it really had a legitimate claim to those areas of expertise. And it just started to move on to the, okay, you respect us. Now we're going to do it together kind of thing. And, and so that was a big moment for that company. I would say that for some companies, they're not even at that stage yet. It's just even getting to the respect us and you understand what we're doing thing. And then you see companies now that are even beyond that. Um, there's actually a pendulum swing back. You know, it's like, okay, I respect what you do. You respect what I do. Why don't you take care of that? And I'll take care of this. And we don't need to do everything together all the time. There's times when we can just go off and do our own thing. And I respect you software architect for needing three weeks to be alone. And I expect you UX researcher for needing three weeks to do this alone. And so I think that that's a kind of funny progression, right? Like in the beginning, it's just, do you even notice me and notice right. what I can do? The next stage is that it was, I was 2016, like lean UX came out in those books. And it was very much like I was a UX researcher and my job then was new. It was like, I'm going to take the whole team on an adventure of research. Mm -hmm. Like that was that it was really cool at that stage, right? To do that. And now, you know, I'm sure some companies are still at that stage, but other companies have gotten almost like, even when I go back to that company and ask, how are you working right now? They'll say, you know, that was what we needed at the time. We needed to do those design sprints and things at the time to get the appreciation of the process from everyone. But now we're pretty much ad hoc. It's pretty fluid. Like depending on the effort, we just spin up what we need to do. So they've let go of that scaffold of those activities and those sprints and things. So I don't know if this helps, but it's just, I myself have gone on this journey, but you also see it when you talk to the industry as a whole, that people are at different, different stages and steps of this. Well, you know, it's the old, the future's here. It's an evenly distributed thing. And of right, course right. the future <laughs> yeah, exactly. is going to be different everywhere, but, um, you know, I, I am heartened to hear that. I mean, that that's, you know, you'd like to think things get better as we get to know right. each other <laughs> and work together. Familiarity doesn't always breed contempt. But um, the thing I wonder about, and it's come up in a bit of the research that Christian and I have been doing, is the, the difference in cadence of work. So mm -hmm. we may understand each other better. We may have enough shared vocabulary that we can have a, a, you know, a product person and a design person can have a, a productive conversation. But um, what about when the product person is on a completely different timetable than the uh, design yeah. or research person, especially the latter who may need a significant amount of time to do any kind of meaningful learning? Yeah, I think that one thing that that reminds me of is it's not unlike a software architect or someone who needs a lot of time to explore a particular problem that they're doing these things. And so I think that there's a lot more there's, and it's not unlike a product manager when they're deep, when building a completely new business case, a completely new case for what's going on. And it's not unlike, now I think that one challenge has been is that your run of the mill frontline software developer has been just jammed into this very like hamster wheel. I have a hamster now, so I can't joke. <laughs> My son has a dwarf hamster. It's really cute. So Dave, you didn't hear that, Dave, to do these things. Um, you know, so I'd say this sort of the frontline engineers have been put in this kind of conveyor belt thing. But where I've seen the bridges being built, even in the organization I'm in right now, is people have a lot more in common than they think when they mm. acknowledge that there's time spans across all the different things that we do. And so we use words like 
wow, okay, that's that's a there is a lot of uncertainty in that area, whether it's architecture, whether it's research, whatever. And and we're building a vocabulary, at least internally, for the type of work you know, that that's that's necessary. I don't really like the framing, and I think that he since has been trying to find an alternative, but there's this guy, Simon Wardley, and he has this thing oh, called yeah. Wardley map. He I've, has I've this had him model on the, uh, yeah. Oh, it's good. Yeah. He has this huh. thing, Pioneers, Settlers, and Town Planners, which has a lot of connotations, which he's trying to get rid of. But one of the ideas in that is that there is a certain motion involved with pioneering activity that is more exploratory, and it's going to involve taking more time to do these particular things. And I like how he calls that out, that in some sense, this progression from this pioneering to this more sort of settling, you know, you're, you're, grow, you're in that growing stage versus this more town planning stage and you know, trains got to run on time and do that kind of stuff. So long way to say is, at least for me, I'm observing that there's more general appreciation for time spans for most things across the different disciplines. I do think there's still the sticking point. And I think a lot of engineers would say this is not fair, that they've been shoved into this almost fake pretend world of these like micro little steps and micro little sprints and things that they've done. Um, but I think that between those, the architects and PMs like are, are all at least in, in our organization are, accepting and acknowledging these different spans as things that are helpful things to think about and talk about. So cross our fingers. I think that's maybe an evolution that has to happen in different organizations over time. Well, one of, the, one of the things that's been like, first of all, I just, I love talking to people that are not UX people. Mm-hmm. <laughs> no, nothing against UX people, but it, it's so refreshing to get other people's perspectives on on essentially the, the same thing, building, developing products, rolling them out, what have you. And I was, I, I, I talked to a lot of content designers and they feel really disrespected and unva- undervalued and <laughs> I'm not surprised uh, they feel that way. Uh, but then I found myself talking to a bunch of product people earlier this year who feel mm-hmm. disrespected and undervalued. And, and it's funny because a lot of the UX folks feel like, oh, they're the ones that have all the power. So um, it, it's kind of Well, you wild. get this a lot with this idea of shift left. So I, just today I was on with security people. We need to shift further left to get further upstream. And then, and then but there's always someone even further to the right of them. Yeah, those security people, I mean, they're always getting involved early and mucking things up. Like we need to shift left now for real. And the PM's like, well, I just got to be where the action's happening, where I've got to have a seat at the table. So I'm going to shift left. And then before you know it, you've sort of, everyone's everyone's chasing each other to the left <laughs> in some ways. So I think that if you take that perspective, it's, um, I think it does suck for anyone though, if you don't feel that your area of expertise is understood or respected, and it can seem like you're burning a lot of calories internally. The thing yeah. um, Christian and I were talking about is, you know, we've got our whole careers for that. And if you take the long view of these things and realize that, you know, even in six years, I mentioned being a UX researcher and seeing things evolve and emerge, these things like it's maybe half of one decade and then things move and things move forward. You know? So it's, I know it's so hard in the moment to feel uh, that, that you're not appreciated. I do think there is a long game component to it where, you know, these things do, these things work themselves out over the particular years. Uh, so if that's any solace for people. Yeah. I, I <laughs> no. mean, really it, it's like you, you kind of have to be around for a little while to, to get a sense of the, the cadence of the long game. And uh, it's yeah. not something that's easily taught. 
And, right, right. <laughs> you know, uh, I mean, we can't even, uh, the long game is, is, is what we need to better understand where we fit and, and what impact we can have in an organization, but we can't even map an organization. That's a whole nother discussion. Right. Um, That's but, funny. you know, I do think what you're getting at with alignment is, is pretty important. And, and, and uh, so with that, I'm going to do a bit of a cliffhanger and take us into a break because uh, after the break, we'll talk about alignment. And uh, we'll be right back. Um, Lou Rosenfeld with John Cutler. You're all listening to the Rosenfeld Review. Hey, it's Lou. And I am here to tell you that we have another conference coming up. And this one is the biggest one that we do all year. It's the Design Ops Summit. It's taking place virtually October 2nd through 6th, 2023 you're going to want to be part of it. Even if you're not a design ops practitioner, you might be without realizing it. Certainly if you're a design manager, design program manager, design leader, or someone who works with things like research repositories, design systems, I think you probably are doing something related to design operations. And uh, we have just launched the program. You're going to want to check it out. It is and Fuego. Hope to see you October 2nd through 6th at the Design Ops Summit. Welcome back to the Rosenfeld Review. Lou Rosenfeld with John Cutler. We're talking, well, we're, we were talking a lot more than product and, and UX, but we are going to talk a little bit now uh, about this theme of alignment uh, John is going to be giving a talk that is tentatively titled The Alignment Trap at Design and Product 2023, which takes place on November 29th, and it's virtual. So um, what's the alignment trap, John? What, what are you referring to? Because uh, there's a lot of things we just covered in the first half of the podcast that could be aligned. Well, this is what I started to – and I can tell it with either a story or just what I was observing um, – I observe in my job and prior jobs, uh, lots and lots of people try to get aligned. Um, and what you start to notice when you see, you know, we're told to get aligned, you know, you need to align with your product counterpart, your product. you've got to align with design, or you've got to align with these engineering pieces, you've got to align. And I can describe it on two levels. The first is the standard premature convergence problem. Right where you rush to get aligned and you're not deeply aligned. But there's a second layer to that, which is an assumption there is um, thou must converge. You know, the double diamond must come back together. And and the, it's basically framed as the problem is, well, you jump too early to alignment, but we really do need to align. We need to align on that particular thing. We need to align on that particular direction. So that's kind of the first layer of it. But as as I'm hinting, when I describe that, what you start to notice is, okay, so now you've converged, you know, you're theoretically aligned. <laughs> and even then what I started to notice is that teams were trying so hard to be aligned, so hard to agree to these particular things, that they weren't really developing coherent models of the problem that they were trying to sort through. 
they weren't acknowledging where there were different perspectives. They're kind of they were they still forcing their perspectives on the particular problem. And the best way I can describe this too is like the simplification trap, which I think is related to it, where you know you're just like, well, we we just need to come up with a simple way to describe this problem. And you see this kind of crunching down of the problem, you know, the different all the nuance and the detail in that particular problem to a point where all coherence is lost. So coherence being like, we could think different things, but are we generally coherent? Do I understand what you're thinking? Do you understand what I'm thinking? And so this is what I'm exploring for this talk is the idea of, is this constant quest for alignment? You know, even once we've allowed ourselves to diverge, we're still still pressing ourselves for this alignment. Is it really, is our is our alignment fragile? You know, is this a shallow level of alignment that we're developing? And what does it mean to be sort of deeply aligned? So maybe that's, I'm giving away a little bit of these things. What does it mean to be deeply aligned when we acknowledge large areas of uncertainty? We acknowledge that there's many different frames. Like we started the first half of this podcast talking about eight different frames on those things. So to give you a specific example, you'll see a team saying, we're aligned. Great. And, and I'll ask them like, okay, well, what's the commercial frame of this problem? What's the value frame of this particular problem? What's the customer's perspective on this particular problem? Uh, what's the what's the team's perspective just in how the team functions and operates? Oh, what's the budget perspective on this problem? Mm-hmm. And what you'll find is is that like teams haven't you know in their 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 pressure to align and pressure to sort of think that they agree on these things. They often don't necessarily have this kind of coherent view of how other people think about the problem and also areas of uncertainty. So without giving away too much, that's generally the direction uh, that I'm taking. Another way that I could describe it very briefly is when you have a company where the sort of value view of the world and the customer's view of the world and the team view of the world are all nicely overlapped, there's a very easy conversation to be had. You know, you talk about goals and good, the technology is there and it's the customer's goals and whatever. But as an organization struggles, you start to notice these different frames of the world get different mm-hmm. <laughs> and they start to drift apart. And we spend a lot of time jumping between them. And the type of alignment it takes to really bring those views of the world together are often structural. They're often about the org design that the company has. They're often designed around the market that we're going after. And it's not something as simple as just running through the double diamond and saying, we've converged Mm. and therefore we can proceed as we are. So it's a deep topic for me and there's a multiple layers to it, but this is kind of the, some of the stuff I'm thinking about. It's like, what is, what does deep alignment look like versus this surface level alignment? So it sounds, let me try to maybe put it, repeat it back in my own words, but what I hear you saying or heard you said uh, is that there's a, like this idea of alignment is is sort of shallow and and false as as currently practiced in that it could be that people are being almost like, I want to be a good citizen. I want to, you know, I want to. I want people to like me, uh, and uh, I want to show that I get them, and right. I may come too far uh, in their direction. Or at the other end of the spectrum, I might try to ram my opinion in and uh, override yeah. other opinions. And the the maybe what people are missing and what you're hinting at with deep alignment is uh, rather than getting on the same page with the message it's really on this more important to have the shared medium if you will it's like yeah it's not so model, much the, the, the shared, content yeah. but the container can can we right. 
we may not always be in the same ball we, we, of the same opinion, but at least we're in the same place, the same ballpark. Right. Yeah. And, and to give like, a, let's just, you know, a specific example I was thinking about from the last two weeks is there was a design team and a research team, and they've been trying desperately for six months to somehow like get people to agree you know, get people to agree to this version of the customer problem Mm -hmm. or whatever these things. And, and realistic, and and there was, you know, an architect involved and there's PMs involved and all sorts of things in, and, and this team was just, they, they, they were chasing this level. Like if we could just all agree about this different thing. And one thing I, I was coaching that team and I said, look, it sounds like you have perspectives on this that we can't necessarily expect others to share at the moment. You have, it's more of a frame, like you have an extremely valuable perspective on this and you're asking people to agree, to align to a perspective. One, what effort have you done to really understand their frames and their perspectives on this particular, like, tell me about the financial part of this problem. Tell me about the, what's the service design element of this once you roll this out and everyone in the org needs to take care of it. And so I guess that was my, maybe to make it very clear is that what they were doing is trying to force everyone around their particular frame or their, you know, if we could all agree, it's adjusting, you know, if we could all just agree and just align that this is the version of the customer problem, then everything would be okay. And what I started to observe is like that, it's much more important to surface these different frames and these different perspectives on this particular thing. And you might not agree or even understand everyone else's perspective, but that gave a much richer perspective on what the, the team, the environment, the team was navigating to find the, the, the solution uh, that it was moving towards. Um, and the funny part about it is, is, you know, the, 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 the design leader in that group said, but I have to have a slide with three pillars in it that show we figured this out. Like I've been told that I'm supposed to communicate, like we figured out the problem. There's three key parts to the problem. I feel pressured to do that. And, and my point was, well, you're a great researcher and you're a great understanding of this. And you don't really believe that it's just those three things, do you? They're like, no, I don't believe it's just right. these three things. I believe it's these different things. So there's a, you know, you can see the topics I'm getting at. It's a little bit about how do you present problems? It's how you think about different perspectives on problems. But I think we just chase this sort of shallow level of alignment too often. And that's what I want to address. And in so you, the, uh, the, the frames that you're referring to, and I think you had eight, from that, maybe yeah. from that book you'd mentioned earlier. Oh, that, yeah, that's uh, one example of different uh, frames, right? So th- those are, in a, in a way, the structure that we have to get ourselves into. Uh, right. And, uh, you know, we, we maybe each sort of product-related tribe uh, has one or two frames that they like to live in and yeah. are comfortable in, but that's incomplete. Uh, I can totally, uh, totally see that. So I'm going to, before we wrap, I'm going to ask you one more question. Uh, this is sort of, I, I, I'm not sure why this c- comes up for me, but I'd love your perspective on this. Uh, um, so if you were going to come up with a metaphor for how the team should be with each other, mm. um, would it be family? Would it be <laughs> uh, That's a great... clan? Like as in, you know, with the C, obviously. Uh, I'm thinking like from anthropology. Um, <laughs> would it be something else? Like what, what, you know, we talk about the table, the seat at the table. We talk about the team. I, I don't know if 
we're doing ourselves justice with any of those framings either. They're they're very uh, limiting. Um, so is, is there anything that's I come up for you? I think of it as you? a team of explorers. I tend to think of the folks as like um, I, my my mental picture when I think of a team is a team sort of launching off into the wilderness together mm. um, or a team with a wonderful garden and they're tending to that garden together but it's not a garden that's a monolithic garden of like oh we only do corn it's like they're 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 evolving this e ecology together that's like another thing i think so this kind of belies the beautiful mess stuff like this is what i get into but i i don't think of it as a sports team because that has very clear win loss right. things and and all that stuff and i don't believe it to i don't believe this should be a military team or anything cuz i just want to put that stuff to the side i don't think it's that and even those situations very clear win or loss and particular things so i tend to think of it i do think of it as like a creative group or like a voyaging group and and you have to ask these questions about like are we moving in the right direction and you know, maybe you have to settle your supply chains and things like that. I don't know. That's I love uh, it. What was that old? Um, it was that prairie with the old video game where you're advancing across in the prairie. Um, you, I you don't have know like that a one. Wagon. It was an old vintage video game, and you're in a covered wagon, and it's like your Oregon Trail. It might be Oregon Trail, actually. That's that's the one to do that, right? So my, my I, producer says Oregon on. Trail. You got it. <laughs> <laughs> well, I'm going to leave you with, with my metaphor, which is my favorite. It's why we have an elephant as the logo. In fact, I'm going to show it here in the video because I just happen to have a Rosenfeld hat here. But it's um, uh, the, the blind man and the elephant because they're out in the... Oh, nice. They're out, you know, the metaphor, they're, uh, the story, the fable. They're, they're out in the jungle. Yeah. They're walking around exploring, you know, sightless in a jungle without anyone yeah. who's got sight. <laughs> But they're exploring unless it's funny you mentioned that just back to elephants is that someone was like, well, what's the elephant in the room here? Mm. And and I said to them, well, why don't we get into the room in the elephant? Like and then I, I, I have a I have a sketch that I'll share with you later that has an elephant with a door. In. Oh, <laughs> and I was like, well, Ooh, let's, I love let's, it. let's get it. Why not? The room's in the elephant. And you know, let's right? just like let's just keep going because you know, of course, uh, then we have to send that Trojan <laughs> elephant into. <laughs> <laughs> some some place that needs infiltration. Anyway, oh my goodness, we could keep going, but we gotta we gotta wrap. I um, last thing uh, I, I, is my traditional question for our guests at the end of a Rosenfeld Review podcast: uh, What um, piece of information or even advice do you have for our listeners? Oh, I think um, yeah. Uh, the thing I've been coming to a lot is really really especially th this happened this week Chris like October 15th whenever people are listening to it, 2023 I think it really is about m making sure just m making sure you're taking care of yourself and also just understanding that things are these things are particularly challenging this week or two that's what's coming to my mind because it's been especially uh you know salient in the organization I'm in so um I don't have much more to that than like uh, and and really as part of that thinking about the cognitive load side that it is highly unlikely, like in the last week or two, when people's minds are on other things in the world, that people are going to be making very good decisions about anything. So, yeah. you know, don't put pressure on them to do that. So that would be generally what I would ask. Be excellent to yourself. Yep. There you go. All right. John Cutler, cool. great to talk with you. Everyone, you should go ahead and if you don't know John uh, already, go ahead and subscribe to The Beautiful Mess. We'll put the link in the show notes. He's also going to be given a fantastic closing keynote. I know you used to be an opener uh, for other bands, but you're the closer this time, John. 
uh, you're lots gonna, of pressure. Uh, you're gonna be, you're gonna do great, and uh, I hope you all got a nice taste of it. It's going to be the closing keynote at uh, Design and Product. I'm vision questing now, so by that by the time this rolls around, we're we're going to sharpen the sharpen the statement. Oh, there. oh so are we going to close the dot now? All right, let's leave that out of it. Anyway, John, great to talk with you. Thanks for joining oh, us yeah. today. Yeah, absolutely, great. Thanks for listening to the Rosenfeld Review, brought to you by Rosenfeld Media. If you like our show, please subscribe and review it on iTunes, Stitcher, or your favorite podcast platform. I'd love it if you tell a friend to have a listen, and check out our website for over 100 podcasts with other interesting people. You'll find them all at rosenfeldreview.com.